This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Are you looking for your next adventure or for your next place to call home? Come explore British Columbia with the help of Health Match BC. We're a free health professional recruitment service funded by the Government of British Columbia. We're currently recruiting for physicians of all specialties on behalf of BC's publicly funded health employers. If you're a physician or other health professional looking to make a change, we can help. Visit us at www.healthmatchbc.org for more information and to speak with one of our recruitment consultants. Roughly 1% of children who visit the emergency department receive sedation for painful procedures. What do we know about its efficacy and safety? And what considerations must physicians keep in mind? I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Today I'm talking to Dr. Maxim Ben-Yakov and Dr. Mala Butt, who have co-authored a practice article called Five Things to Know About Emergency Procedural Sedation in Children. The article is published in CMAJ. I've reached Maxim in Toronto and Mala in Ottawa. Welcome. Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. Thanks for being with us today. First off, can you each tell us about yourselves, starting with you, Maxim? Hi, Neil. Thanks for having us. I'm uh, Maxim Benyakov. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics and medicine at the University of Toronto. And I'm an emergency physician at both the academic institutions and the community hospital in our um, great city of Toronto. I'm also a clinician investigator at the Toronto General Research Institute. And up until recently, I was uh, working uh, part-time in the Academic Pediatric Center uh, here in Toronto, the Sick Kids Hospital, where I had a chance to collaborate with uh, Dr. Malabat, um, both as a, as a fellow, and now uh, we, we've co-offered this paper. And yourself, Mala? My name is Mala Bat. Um, I'm an emergency physician at CHEO in Ottawa and an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Ottawa. Max and I uh, are former colleagues when I also worked at SickKids um, earlier in the decade. Great. It's such a privilege to be having you both on here. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us why you wanted to write this article for CMAJ at this time? That's a good question, Neil. And uh, when I was uh, transitioning from uh, the academic setting into the community uh, setting, I always reaffirmed uh, the fact that Knowledge translation often takes about five to 10 years from the time that we publish articles and research comes up. And um, to, to make the knowledge a little more digestible and usable for, for your readers as well as for my colleagues at large, um, I thought it would be, it'd be interesting to, to summarize uh, some of the studies that came out in the past um, five or 10 years in terms of uh, procedural sedation in, in, in children. And I was hoping to make this um, into a usable um, little article that, that could... Um, shorten that lag between uh, research coming out and we, us actually applying it at the bedside. So would it be fair to say that there's been some key landmark publications in this area over the last five to 10 years that have really influenced clinical practice? And if so, what, what are those studies? Well, absolutely. And this is where I uh, contacted uh, Dr. Bat and uh, we collaborated on this little article because uh, whom better to co-write this with me than they the actual expert herself uh, in the field who's been working on some amazing research to, to really gather 
the data and and the studies that that we need to examine uh, this very common sort of occurrence in the emergency department of procedural sedation in kids. Yet uh, we were lacking a lot of the uh, the basic research to explain its safety, its eff- efficacy, uh, the pharmacotherapy that we apply to uh, pediatric sedation in the emergency setting. That's really kind, Max. Um, we are really proud of the work that we've done with this cross-Canada um, multi-center, multi-year data collection for procedural sedation in kids in the emergency department. But we also, I also feel like I have to acknowledge the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium and also several other smaller studies who have published, especially the PSRC, has published large-scale landmark papers over the last decade um, specific to adverse events in procedural sedation, and also um, most notably fasting status and its effect on uh, adverse outcomes. And we'll hopefully get to touch on a bit of that as we um, talk a little bit more. Absolutely. So it's a great opportunity to start delving into what some of those studies showed and how the clinical interface has changed as a result of the research studies published over the last decade. First, what are the common situations in which a child might receive emergency sedation? So, Neil, we typically sedate kids in the emergency department for procedures that are either profoundly painful or for ones that we need very good motion control for, or sometimes both. Um, From our work, we know that the top five procedures for which kids get sedated in emergency departments are orthopedic reductions, as in fractures and dislocations that need to be reduced, laceration repairs, abscess, incision and drainage, foreign body removal, and lumbar punctures. Um, I should also probably be clear here in that when we are talking about procedural sedation, we're really talking about parenteral procedural sedation, so IV sedation for these procedures. And when we're talking about procedural sedation, we'll talk about the different medications that we could use. Uh, Most commonly, ketamine would be employed in, uh, in kids undergoing emergency sedation. And ketamine is one of those drugs that has a, such a high safety profile that we definitely um, turn to ketamine when we are talking about major resuscitations, uh, major burns, and trauma, uh, when we need to perform RSI or other um, emergent sedation scenarios uh, outside of those almost pre-planned procedures. And have you seen some of the um, changing epidemiology of when we use emergency procedural sedation, um, for example, with procedures that previously we, we may not have used before, such as for lumbar punctures? Has that interface changed? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that we've seen the landscape move in both directions. So with a greater understanding that um, pain in children is very important to treat um, because we now understand that um, untreated pain or traumatic procedures has um, psychological and physical long-term effects in children. We do perform more procedural sedation on procedures that perhaps we hadn't done in the past. So lumbar puncture could be one of them. Um, Other ones are that we try to ensure that IV insertions, even minor procedures such as IV insertions are, um, are done with um, some form of pain control and at time sedation if needed. On the other end of the landscape, you know, when we did our study, our data collection started in 2010 and we were doing IV sedation for a lot of laceration repairs that needed good motion control, such as a complex dog bite on the face. And with the emergence of more, the use of more intranasal medications, IV sedation is used much less commonly in these kids, but hopefully still providing them with a good sedation experience. Just to add that, aside from children, you know, there are other 
populations such as the elderly who are at risk for uh, poor pain control and oligoanalgesia. So along with kids, uh, you know, we should always be aware that good pain control and um, adequate anxiolysis that when it comes to any procedures uh, should be kept in mind. And, and we often um, still do see that, that, that issue of uh, underuse of appropriate um, analgesics and, and sedatives in, in kids when they were actually appropriate to, to be used. That's really interesting, this idea that the, 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 the range for when we administer emergency procedural sedation it is widening and it's a bi-directional um, component to it as well. Would you say that that's matched in a decrease of requirement for general anesthesia as well? Or do you think that's a separate uh, cohort of children who need that type of sedation? I might say that it's a separate cohort of children. I think that we're just getting better at recognizing and treating children's pain. So for some of those procedures that previously never received any sedation, they would have been simply uh, held down and papoosed, which we now look at as a, uh, as a brutal act because we do have better access to medication and options for these children. You mentioned patient and parent acceptability as one of the factors for when we choose to give emergency procedural sedation. And certainly you acknowledge that the, our understanding of pain in children is getting better. And as a result, so our caregivers experience when they come to hospital for procedures that do require emergency sedation. What other factors should physicians consider when deciding whether or not to use emergency procedural sedation as part of their treatment? Well, we consider both patient and procedure factors when we decide whether to do a sedation in the emergency department. We want to make sure that uh, patients are sedated safely, and we want to set ourselves up for the best chance of success. So in addition to the usual assessment of features that would make it difficult to perform effective bag mask ventilation should the need arise, such as the presence of facial hair or facial differences such as rectronathia, there have been many studies that have actually looked at risk factors. So some studies have shown that kids who were born prematurely, those that are obese, um, or those that have had a current or recent upper respiratory tract infection are at a higher risk of sedation-related adverse events. So those are things that we consider as well. The Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium that I mentioned earlier published a very large study in 2016 with over 100,000 uh, sedations that were performed outside of the operating room. Now, very few of these were emergency department related, um, and the cohort was in general sicker than what we typically sedate in the emergency department. But their findings are really important because they give us probably the best insight into patient and procedure factors that are associated with major sedation complications. And what they found was that young age, which was defined as less than 12 months, if a patient had a gastrointestinal diagnosis, they had obstructive sleep apnea, or a significant medical history, which would place them within ASA physical status classification of three or higher. And those children who were undergoing a bronchoscopy or endoscopy, that these are the children that were at the highest risk of a major sedation complication, which includes aspiration. But other than the patients who have sleep apnea, these risk factors really describe a patient that's very atypical of patients undergoing sedation in the emergency department. We generally select our patients very carefully and perform sedation on healthy children who are undergoing short, painful procedures. And do systems levels factors ever play into it, such as trying to reduce the length of stay in the emergency department or trying to turn a patient around really pretty quickly? 
So I think uh, we, we take into account um, all sorts of uh, various system factors and particularly the environment that you're in because not all of these are, are made the same. Uh, not all of these can provide uh, the same level of support in terms of uh, personnel and equipment. And uh, often enough, we would be um, transporting children down to the downtown uh, academic institution because we don't have the appropriate uh, setting or equipment to, to, to sedate a child or perform the procedure that would, that would be needed or the appropriate personnel to actually care for the after effects of the procedure. And so we'd have to take this into account. Of course, with the winter now uh, coming and we're us expecting a, a wave of patients sitting in our waiting rooms, we, we do like to think about what is the most efficient way to, to care for our patients while not forgetting about the 30 or 40 patients waiting in the waiting room with potential other illnesses. And so we have to consider uh, what is the most efficient yet safe an effective way to to provide uh, the right care for the right patient. And so we definitely take that into account. But of course, uh, we have to think about, um, at the end of the day, what is safest and most appropriate for, for the child in front of me, and, and specifically talking about sedatives and analgesia. These are often high risk, so we don't want to make this decision uh, willy-nilly just based on trying to turn around the, 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 the stay as, as fast as we can. Do you find that it's necessary to have the anesthesia resource of a pediatric anesthetist or uh, an anesthetist with the capability of treating a pediatric patient on site? Or um, do you find that this can be done in settings where that, where that tertiary level service isn't quite um, set up? That's a great question. And um, across Ontario, where both uh, Mala and I, uh, we work, uh, there are uh, scores of community hospitals who care for probably um, 80 to 90% of children across the province. And so a small minority of those kids do end up in the academic institutions that have tertiary care level of support. And so all that to say is that moderate sedation uh, for painful procedures or non-painful procedures can be done very safely in the community setting uh, with some level of um, anesthetic support. And uh, the considerations that come into play here is that, once again, as Mala mentioned, we are very um, selective about the patients that we sedate. We try not to take unnecessary risks when, when, when there are other options available. And we are fortunate to work in a system that's, uh, uh, that allows us to, to, to uh, transfer patients if we need to do that. Uh, but uh, we often try to think about what is available in the environment that we work in. And most of the time, from my experience in the community setting, uh, we usually have the appropriate resources to provide safe sedation. Some of the, the societies across North America that, that sort of put out the guidelines for emergency sedation, they have a recommendation in terms of which personnel would be required to perform a safe sedation. And uh, most community hospitals can provide that. And that usually includes uh, a physician to provide a sedation, monitoring the airway, a nurse, a respiratory therapist potentially, and another provider to actually perform the procedure. Um, and most of the time, this can be achieved uh, very safely in, in most community hospitals. Can I just add something to that? I couldn't agree with um, Max more. Um, there are studies that look at provider specialty and um, the safety of performing sedation outside of the operating room. And they've never found any difference across uh, intensive care physicians, emergency physicians, general pediatricians. But for me, I don't think that it's really about your specialty. It's really about the training that you've undergone. As emergency physicians, we are trained to handle an airway and to be able to manage and rescue patients if the need arises. 
So I think that that is the most important thing when people are performing sedation, that they are skilled and able to rescue a patient. Because we all, we know from the the vast body of work in procedural sedation over the last several decades that in general, it's safe with a very low incidence of serious adverse events. But the percentage of um, events that happen that could evolve into something serious were were rescue or were um, interventions not performed are significantly higher. So I would agree with what Max said, but just to underscore the fact that we're giving the sedation because we are, um, the people are trained and um, have the, have the ability to rescue and manage patients. And I think it's a really important take on for our listeners to, to know that these procedures can be done in community settings they don't need to be done in tertiary level settings or an academic institution. And that if you have the right skill sets, including airway management and uh, being able to bag mask ventilate, uh, then it may be suitable for, for them to carry out these procedures should, um, should they feel confident in doing so. Would you agree with that? Yes. And just before we get into a little bit more about the safety profile, can you just tell me, we've been talking about emergency procedural sedation as quite a broad term here, but what are the different types and agents that you do commonly use for emergency procedural sedation? So when we're talking about parenteral uh, procedural sedation, we're talking about usually um, IV or IM ketamine. The other option would be to use something like IV propofol and sometimes the addition of uh, a narcotic or a benzodiazepine. But most of the time, the research is showing us that ketamine is the preferred agent in, in kids, ketamine being an NMDA blocker. Uh, it's, a, it's a very potent sort of uh, anesthetic but also it has some amnestic properties and analgesic properties, uh, which is of benefit to us in the emergency department, especially working with kids undergoing uh, very anxiety-inducing and painful procedures. Of course, there are other options are used um, selectively in certain patients, and, and sometimes uh, we would be employing uh, more milder sedatives, such as intranasal um, benzodiazepines or opioids, However, those medications will probably be used in, in procedures which don't require a high degree of immobility or, or, or severe pain control. And do you always use these agents in isolation or do you use them in combination therapy? So based on the research that, uh, that, that we uh, discussed in the article, um, it has been shown that the combination of medications does lead to a higher increase of adverse events. Typically, um, the recommendation would be to use them in isolation and, and ketamine having the highest safety uh, profile. Um, but of course, if, uh, for instance, a procedure calls for additional pain control or the duration of the procedure would be longer, sometimes we would tend to um, add medications. So as an example, um, if I had to sedate a child with a very complex forearm fracture that requires a prolonged uh, reduction and then um, re-reduction potentially. Occasionally, uh, you may employ ketamine and then in addition to that may provide propofol to, to continue the sedation because uh, each drug has its own ceiling effect and, and, and maximal doses that would be, we'll be using in the emergency department before we veer into the general anesthetic sort of uh, dosing range. As Max mentioned, ketamine is, has been shown to have the, um, the best safety profile and the and has the lowest incidence of serious adverse events, the lowest um, chance of needing to intervene to rescue the patients. I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving ketamine and propofol. It's just that you must be prepared to rescue that patient because the incidence of needing bag mask ventilation or having a serious adverse event is higher. So a bit of caution must be used when we're considering combination therapy with emergency procedural sedation. 
And you mentioned some of the um, adverse events experience, and that could include bag mask, ventilation, or other adverse events. Um, can you just give us a brief overview of what type of safety profile has been studied with uh, emergency procedural sedation in particular, and what, what those rates in epidemiology are? So the uh, literature that looked at this examined the rate of adverse events uh, in terms of the need for uh, CPR, the need for bag valve ventilation, the need for intravenous fluid hydration if somebody is hypotensive. And so uh, generally speaking, emergency sedation is exceedingly safe and there are no recorded cardiac arrest episodes or respiratory arrest episodes based on the um, the, the prospective cohorts that, that we uh, cite. Uh, there, there is a small incidence of hypoventilation and transient desaturation requiring temporary bag valve ventilation. But in general, procedural sedation is extremely safe in, in the hands of emergency providers. Um, and this is, speaks to the fact that we select kids who are otherwise healthy to begin with, who experienced a traumatic event that led them to needing the procedural sedation, which was unplanned. And so we are very diligent about um, uh, selecting our patients. Uh, and of course, if somebody does present with comorbidities uh, in need of an urgent or emergent procedural sedation, these patients would typically refer to our uh, anesthesia colleagues to, to be done in, in a more, what would be called a controlled environment, such as uh, in the operating room or, or, or a procedures room, potentially the next day when they've had a chance to uh, be medically stabilized and optimized for that procedure. And just how common is an adverse event? So adverse events occur in approximately 5 to 10% of kids undergoing an emergency department procedural sedation. Oxygen desaturation and vomiting are the most common adverse effects, and they occur in about 5% of all children. Serious adverse events are much less common. And in our work um, of over 6,000 kids, uh, we found that the incidence was uh, just above 1%. I think I believe it was 1.1%. And what kind of adverse events are classified as serious in that context? The serious adverse events that we included in our study were apnea, laryngospasm, hypotension, bradycardia, complete airway obstruction, pulmonary aspiration, permanent neurologic injury, or death. And while that list does sound extremely scary, um, I have to tell you that in our study of over 6,000 kids, we did not observe any complete airway obstructions, no instances of um, aspiration, permanent neurologic injury, or death. You mentioned that one of the most common side effects, uh, despite it not being serious, is nausea and vomiting. Although not serious, that's quite bothersome for patients and parents. What can be done about that? So that's a great question. And I, this is another um, landmark paper that was published over the last decade by Langston and colleagues out of um, Colorado Children's. And they performed a uh, randomized control trial of ondansetron um, versus nothing for children undergoing emergency department um, sedation. And they found that ondansetron reduced the incidence of vomiting and that they developed a number needed to treat of nine to reduce the occurrence of vomiting both in the emergency department and at home. The number um, needed to treat uh, increased to 13 if you were just looking at reducing emergency department vomiting. What's interesting is that um, post-op or post-sedation nausea and vomiting with ketamine is most common in children five years and older. And um, that is for a reason that's really unknown to me and the etiology has not been reported in the literature. 
but we also found this in our study. And we also found that the incidence of vomiting was reduced by 50% across all age groups if ondansetron was administered prior to sedation. Um, and since the incidence in young children was only 2% compared to 10% in older children, our recommendation is really to um, treat with pre-procedural ondansetron in the kids who are five years and older who will undergo sedation with ketamine. And in what time frame do you would you make the recommendation pre-procedure? You know, that's a good question. I don't think this has specifically been um, studied, but we typically give it in the 15 to 20 minutes prior to um, the start of the sedation. What's the working half-life of ondansetron? And do you ever give a second dose to take away? The peak effects of ondansetron, I think we're borrowing this from uh, literature in, in other conditions, peak effect anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes when we're talking about sublingual ondansetron. Um, now, the half-life... Um, but the elimination of the drug does change with age. And so the drug itself can be dosed every six to eight hours. But uh, typically, we would not be discharging patients who are still vomiting and potentially could be vomiting more at home. Those, those kids, I would like to monitor a bit longer. Um, and, and sometimes you could almost anticipate this when the parents tell you that they've had previous uh, dental anesthesia or some other minor procedures and they were vomiting excessively afterwards. And so typically, I, it's a question that I tend to ask the parents how are they after um, uh, other minor things or painful procedures or other things that, that come up uh, that may have led to kids to vomit? It's a really nice practice point, and thank you. Just moving on, you include a point in your article about pre-medication with opioids. Presumably, this is something that happens quite frequently. You encounter a patient who needed uh, analgesia for whatever reason, and then you decide to uh, that they may need um, procedural sedation. Can you talk a little bit about why or how opioids interact with sedatives and what you might do in that setting? So in addition to their um, action centrally and peripherally on the, the nociceptive pathways, opioids uh, can also act on the central respiratory centers. And they produce a dose-dependent effect on, on the ventilatory function. Um, certain young children can be um, more prone to those effects. When opioids are used in combination with other sedative uh, barbiturates, such as uh, propofol and, and even with ketamine, uh, it can lead to uh, an increased risk of hyperventilation, oxygen saturation, and apnea. Now, ketamine in itself is a bit different. It's not your typical uh, sedative, but it also acts on some opioid receptors, uh, which is probably responsible for its uh, really good analgesic effect. But in high enough doses uh, and in combination with other medications, it can act on your central nervous system and produce a synergistic depression of your respiratory functions. And as this has been shown in animal studies, but also in healthy uh, human volunteers. So uh, the recent uh, cohort studies, they found that when opioids were administered in, in very close proximity to, to those sedatives and particularly ketamine, there was a slightly higher incidence of uh, sedation-related adverse effects, um, particularly oxygen saturation, some vomiting, and the need for uh, positive pressure ventilation with uh, bag mask ventilation. And that risk is, is the highest when the opioids are given within 30 minutes of sedation. Clinically speaking, if uh, we have somebody um, who, who does have a painful condition, uh, it will be probably inhumane to withhold analgesics from them. Uh, but anticipating the need for sedation, I try to titrate my medications to effect and try to uh, bear in mind that, that they will have a, a sedative um, that, that will be given parentarily uh, soon enough. And so you try not to overshoot that effect, if that makes sense. 
And are there some opioids that are worse than others, or is it more about the timing of the opioid? So we found that morphine um, was associated with a higher instance of adverse events compared to fentanyl, and this might have to do with the half-life of both of those narcotics. So careful consideration must be taken in, in regard to choosing the opioid and when, you, and, and when you give it, if you think that this child's going to go on to needing uh, procedural sedation. I think Max and I are on the same page as that, um, to say that treating pain in children is really one of the most important things. And so if you happen to give opioids close to the start of a sedation, it's really to be aware that um, you might have an adverse event that, or you might have to respond to hypoventilation or oxygen desaturation, just so that you're prepared. So it arms the cl clinician with more information um, so that they um, have the chance to be prepared. The additional practice point, uh, if I may add here, um, if I'm anticipating the need for uh, ketamine as a sedative, th there's emerging literature that we can use sub-dissociative doses of ketamine for pain control. And so sometimes I would give a, a smaller dose of ketamine as my analgesic, anticipating that I'm using the same drug uh, for sedation uh, in, in, in a little while. And, and in the appropriate setting, this might be a good option for some patients. Moving on to a slightly more controversial aspect. Guidelines on whether a child should fast from food and water before receiving sedation is somewhat controversial. In the emergency department, there often isn't time for children to fast. What are the recommendations around fasting? And is there good evidence to back them up? The recommendations uh, differ according to specialty society and between countries. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics here in North America recommend that children undergoing sedation in the emergency department should um, fast for as long as children who are undergoing general anesthesia. The American College of Emergency Physicians, however, is the only specialty society to say that the start of a sedation should not be delayed based solely on fasting duration. And we have more evidence over the past few years that help, that help support this point of view. First is the study that we talked about already by the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium by Beach and colleagues. And what they showed was that fasting status was not an independent risk factor for a major complication. In their cohort of over 100,000 children, there were 10 cases of aspiration. All of those 10 patients had fasted longer than six hours from solids. So what we understand now is that it's really about patient, uh, I think it's really more about the patient factors that predispose someone to experiencing an aspiration rather than just solely on um, their fasting duration. The ICAPS group has recently published over the last year has published a clinical practice guideline recommending a staged approach uh, or more nuanced approach to pre-procedural fasting for sedations that occur outside of the operating room. And this is the first guideline to take into account um, both procedure and patient factors when recommending the duration of fasting. And I think that this is really important. And then this is a way that we should be moving. It's a bold departure from the traditional guidelines, but I think it's a really important one. And it is the guideline that most accurately represents uh, what we've seen in the evidence. If we want to speak specifically about emergency department sedation, there has never been a reported case of um, pulmonary aspiration in a child undergoing parenteral procedural sedation in the emergency department. 
We know from many previous cohorts that only about 50% of children uh, undergoing sedation in the emergency department actually have fulfilled fasting guidelines. And yet we've never observed a, a, a case of aspiration. So that's something. And I think that that goes back to the idea that we really do select our patients very carefully. They're in general, they're very healthy. They undergo short, painful procedures, and they don't have a lot of the principal risk factors that place patients at risk of aspiration, such as planned manipulation of the airway. We published a study in 2018 that looked at whether the risk of aspiration changed over fasting duration. So if a child had only fasted for three hours prior to sedation, is that child at higher, lower, or different risk than a patient that had fasted 10 hours prior to sedation? And what we found is that the the curves that came out were almost entirely flat, so that patients who had fasted for short durations and longer durations were at the same risk. And I think that uh, literature now um, is showing what we've all been anecdotally experiencing, um, and we've kind of had a, had a hunch that um, we, we are not doing GAs in the emergency department. We typically uh, provide a, a very controlled amount of anesthetics that, that really um, allow us to complete the procedure and uh, very often we try not to go beyond the sort of the moderate sedation range. And so now uh, finally we have the research to show us that we probably can deviate from uh, the previous society's recommendations uh, that, that were borrowed from other specialties and applied to the emergency medicine specialty. Uh, and finally, we actually uh, are, are seeing the literature from, from the emergency department uh, to actually support that kind of practice that we've all been doing sometimes in secret and in, in, as, as rogue practitioners, <laughs> deviating from some of the potentially uh, local uh, policy statements and, and other sort of uh, other societies' recommendations. Really important frontier avenue to watch then and to see what comes out over the next few years. Thank you very much for joining me today, Maxim and Mala. I really appreciate uh, your really extensive and very thorough conversation today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Maxim Ben-Yakov and Dr. Mala Bhatt. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmha.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for CMHA. Thank you for listening.